You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. All right. How you guys doing? You doing all right? All right, cool. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you today. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one of those on your way out today, feel free to swing by Centerpoint on your way out. We have free Bibles there, both in English and in Spanish, and just pray that's a gift to you. Um, and then also, what I want to let you guys know about is a couple of announcements we missed just a little minute ago. Many of you guys know that we're trying to collect presents for Foster Connect and for foster families here in our valley. We only have one tag left, which is absolutely incredible. We had 20 total, and as of last week, we only have one left, so that's cool. So if you have bought gifts to help support foster families and foster children here in our valley, next week, bring those to the gathering. Turn them in right back there at Centerpoint. We will gather those. And then we've got opportunities as a church. If you want, you can help gift wrap those presents and then help deliver them as well. We also have a new book this month. During our season of Advent, we have a book called The Advent of the Lamb of God. Now, this book is more than a story about a baby born in Bethlehem, but it's actually a story that encompasses the entire Old Testament and and all of human history, unveiling God's plan for humanity. And so if you want a resource just to celebrate this time of year, a short, helpful resource, feel free to swing back by Centerpoint. We've got that book. It's only six bucks here. Uh, It's actually 12 bucks online, so you get a discount here. Sound good? Cool. All right. Well, We're going to jump back into Advent. You might remember that the word Advent is just simply a Latin term that means coming or arrival. And during this season, you and I get the opportunity as followers of Jesus Christ to join in with the world in celebrating and remembering Jesus' first coming while also joyfully anticipating his second coming. And as we go through this season of Lent, or, or Lent, Advent, sorry, that's not for a while, what we're going to be doing is unpacking the Old Testament book of Ruth. Now, I must warn you that as we go through this book, it's not your typical Christmas story. It's not all sugar plums and candy canes and lollipops. And honestly, if we look at Jesus' birth, his wasn't either. So you see, so many of the Christmas songs you and I sing during this time of the year tend to neglect the drama and the hostility and the suffering that came with Jesus' birth. I mean, think about it. For example, How do you think the tension felt between Mary and Joseph as they discussed and even planned for the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus? How do you think that worked out? I mean, think about it, that when Mary was about to deliver, she had to go to Bethlehem, right? And while she was there, there was no lodging, and so she gives birth in something comparable to a stable or a barn. But not only that, but I've never heard in a Christmas song about the fact that King Herod who was a lunatic, just a crazy man, was out trying to kill Jesus, which forced Mary and Joseph to seek asylum in Egypt. Instead, we tend to sing songs like this, silent night, holy night, all is calm. And I got a question, was it really calm for them? We sing things like, no crying he makes. Now I will tell you, that would be just as miraculous to me as the virgin birth itself for him not to cry. Because I don't know any baby that, do, that doesn't come into this world or that comes into this world silent. And what I appreciate about the book of Ruth is that it is similar to the birth of Jesus in the fact that it doesn't sugarcoat life either, especially when it comes to suffering. 
You see, suffering, guys, never calls ahead. It never works into our schedule at just the right time. It almost always seems to come at the most improper, improper times, the most random of moments. And it reminds me of a situation that my daughter went through when she was really young, when we were living in another house here in Las Vegas. We were in the backyard of our house, and while we were sitting there, I was at that time, my father-in-law uh, was here, and we were sitting in the back, my wife and I, just enjoying the morning, uh, discussing things, just catching up on life and all that, when all of a sudden the door opened and my daughter walked into the backyard. She had gotten out of bed, it was early in the morning, walked into the backyard and stood right in the middle of the grass. Now, while she was standing there in the grass, we were just carrying on our conversation and I totally forgot that our sprinklers were about to come on. And so there she is in the middle of the grass and the sprinklers come on and all of a sudden water just starts pouring on her. And she starts to scream like, help, help, help. She looks at me and I just start laughing because that's what I do. And then she looks at mom because she's like, mom will actually help, 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 help. And so Jess goes in there, grabs her. We take her inside. Now at that time when she was little, her hair was growing and it kind of grew out kind of like an umbrella. And one of the amazing things we noticed is when we took her inside, she was screaming. The only thing that was wet was her hair because it ended up catching everything else and she was completely dry underneath. Now I can't help but to think that life is like that sometimes. One minute, everything's fine, and in the next minute, in a split second, it's not. One minute, we're laughing, and then we get that text, that phone call, that email, and the weight and the trials and the suffering of this life come showering upon us. Today, you and I are going to see a woman by the name of Naomi who can relate to that. For Ruth chapter 1 opens up with one problem after another. And so we, before we dive into this text, why don't we check out this video that's going to give us a bit of a summary of everything that takes place in this first chapter. Check it out. All right. So if you could, just read along with me. We're going to read through this chapter and just discuss what we saw there so that we can really grasp what is taking place in this book. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the days, of the, judge, the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife had and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived about 10 years, but both Malon and Kilion died. So that, the, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now there's a lot you and I can unpack in this first paragraph, but I think just a couple of comments will suffice. You see, what the author is trying to show you and me is that there's a series of problems taking place in Ruth chapter one. How do we know this? Because of what he says. He says there's a huge decline in morality because he tells us who was ruling at the time. He says it was during the days when the judges ruled. Now, this isn't a timestamp, and it's not necessarily the beginning of a story. It's not like he's saying once upon a time in a land far, far away. Rather, what the author is doing here is showing you and me the cultural climate in which our story is about to take place. And the book of Judges is extremely helpful here because at the very end of Judges, we read a verse that tends to summarize the mindset of this day. Check it out. It says this in Judges 21, 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Think about that. 
What would it be like for everyone to do what was right in their own eyes? That would be absolutely scary, would it not? Over the past 11 weeks or so, my community group has been studying the book of Judges. And I think they would agree with me when I say that Judges is not a book that you should go and do likewise. You shouldn't try to live this out. You see, the people of God, the Israelites, were always meant to live distinct lives from the nations around them, to show those nations that there's only one true God in Israel and to draw those nations in to worship that one God. That's what Exodus 19 is all about. But instead of them doing that and being distinct from the culture, they ended up blending in with the culture and they started to be like those nations and to worship those nations' gods. And what the book of Judges tells us is that you and I will inevitably become what it is we worship, that we will tend to resemble what it is we most esteem in our lives. And instead of worshiping the one true God, the Israelites worshiped the pagan gods that were around them, and they became like them and started to engage in rampant stealing, sexual assault, and just a really, really grotesque killing. I would say that the book of Judges, the level of immorality and the nature of those killings and the violence that's in that book would make even some of us in Las Vegas blush. If you really want to know a sin city, read Judges. It's like Sin City on steroids. Because the entire book is a book about what it is like to live life with no regard for God's rule in your life. And what this shows us, and this is important for us to see, is that not all of the Bible is prescriptive. Not all of the Bible is take two and call me in the morning. But some of the Bible is descriptive. That means it was written to warn us and to cause us to turn back to God. You see, you and I, we tend to cover up our mistakes, right? We tend to cover up our past. We don't really retell things in the way that they actually were, but we try to retell things in a way to make them sound better. My kids do this all the time. They'll say, well, I didn't hit him that hard. Or they'll say, well, I didn't say she was stupid. I said she was acting stupid, right? We tell our stories and we live out particular details. We soften them. We recast them into a better light. But that's not the case with the Bible. The Bible is raw. And it helps us to see what life is really like. And that's why when you look at this book, you've got to understand the moral climate that's taking place. Some theologians will say of the book of Ruth that it is like the pearl in the pig pen. Or they'll say that it's like a flicker of light within a very dark time period. Why is that? We'll see here in a second, okay? What we need to see too is not only was there a decline in morality, but there's also a decline in leadership. Those in our story are not immune to this cultural climate. They too have been infected. You see, there was a famine in this land, which just means no food. And what is ironic is that the famine was in Bethlehem and the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And so this would be like standing in a Panera or an Einstein's and not having any bagels, bread, or muffin. It would just be extremely weird. Now, one of the things I oftentimes say is this, that difficult situations and difficult problems and people don't put anything into our lives that isn't already there, but rather they tend to just show them. For example, a bridge. You've got a bridge that has some cracks in the bridge that you can't see with the naked eye, but the cracks are there. And if you take a huge truck, a huge semi-truck full of a lot of weight, and you take it over that bridge, what happens when the weight of that truck gets onto that bridge? It starts to expose those cracks. Were those cracks already there? Yes. 
but the weight of that truck helps to see the reality of the condition of that bridge. And what we're going to see in this story is that this weight of this famine is going to show the cracks or the heart conditions of the characters in the story. The first person we read about is this guy by the name of Elimelech. He's a husband, he's a father, which means he's a leader. And so when this famine comes into his life, when he feels the weight of this famine, what does Elimelech do? He runs and he moves away. And as we will see, this is a terrible decision. Why? Because what does this man do? He takes his family and himself away from God's people and from God's land. The very land that God had given them as he rescued them out of Egypt and said, I want you to stay here. I want you to flourish. I want you to grow and I'm going to provide for you. So instead of entrusting in God's goodness and God's grace, what does Elimelech do? He runs. And some of us in here are thinking, well, what's the big deal? I mean, he's just looking out for his family, right? He's just trying to get some food. He's just trying to be a good dad, a good husband. But what we've got to understand is that Elimelech going to Moab is not the same as you and I say moving from Las Vegas to San Diego. You see, the Bible tells us that there is a reason there is no bread in the house of bread Bethlehem. That this famine is no accident. It's no coincidence. In Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, God tells his people that if they would turn away from him and start to worship other false gods, that God would discipline them like a loving father. He says, I will withhold my blessing from you. I will withhold my provision from you so that you will turn away back to me. And the psalmist writes it this way in Psalm 119, 67. He says this, before I was afflicted, I went astray but now I keep your word. You see, like a good parent would take away a TV or a cell phone from a kid to help them to understand the severity of the situation, that is what God is doing. And in Deuteronomy 30, God puts forth this promise, this good news, that if you will turn away from those false gods, if you will come back to me, I would love to lavish you with my provision, with my grace, with my love. I would love to restore you. However, instead of repenting of his sin and turning back to God, what does Elimelech do? He runs away to one of the worst places imaginable, Moab. What this famine is showing us is the true condition of Elimelech's heart, that he's really no different than the climate around him, that he too is doing what he thinks is best, what is right in his own eyes. And the famine reveals the cracks in his heart. Think about it. Instead of Elimelech running to God, what does he do? He runs away. He runs instead of praying. He runs instead of seeking God's will for his life. He runs instead of repenting of his sin. And he picks of all places the worst place you could possibly go. You see, Elimelech should have been a good dad who knew his Bible, who knew Deuteronomy 30. He should have sat the family down and said, this is no accident. We know why we're here. Let's repent. Let's go back to God. But instead, he runs away. And ironically, Elimelech's name means this. My God is king. But his actions show that God's not his king, but rather he's the one who is king in his life because he's the one who's going to call the shots. And of all the places he moves, he moves to Moab, which is the worst. Moab was about 50 miles east of Bethlehem. And sure, it'd be a great place to go, you know, because it's close. 
But what many people don't seem to realize is that by going to Moab, where he's going is to the very enemies of God. That Moab is not the greatest nor the safest place to raise a family. You see, the people of Moab originate from an incestuous relationship, if you will. In Genesis 19, we read about Lot, who's Abraham's cousin, getting drunk one night, ends up sleeping with one of his daughters, and as a result, a child is born, and the child's name is Moab, and what comes from the Moab is the people called the Moabites. Now, the Moabites were some extremely confused as well as just perverse people group. Their chief god wasn't the god of the Bible, but rather they worshiped a false pagan god by the name of Chemosh. And the worship of Chemosh was absolutely grotesque and included child sacrifice. And sadly, what we see is instead of being distinct, there are times in Israel's history that rather than being distinct unto God, they actually join in the worship of Chemosh and actually sacrifice their own children. But we also see that as Israel is going through the wilderness, the Moabites are constantly pestering them. They're attacking them. They're trying to destroy them. Not only that, but some of their women end up seducing some of the Israelite men into sleeping with them, into worshiping Chemosh, which results in 24,000 men dying. And what ends up happening here as Elimelech moves his two sons, Malon and Kilion, over to Moab, we see that they too do what? They worship or they marry Moabite women. Now, the interesting thing about Malon and Kilion is they're not really cool names. Some of us are like, man, those sound like Trekkie, right? Real strong, they're coming in. But Malon just simply means weak, and Kilon, or Kilion means wasting away. And so why would Elimelech move to all, of all places to this one? It's because he really thinks that the grass is greener over in Moab. But as my grandpa used to tell me, the reason the grass could be greener is because there's a lot more poop over there. And there was a lot of poop in Moab, right? Think about what goes on here. In Moab, Elimelech dies. We don't know if he was hit by a camel. We don't know if he had a heart attack. We don't know if he lived for a few years and then he passed away. We just know he died. He did what was right in his own eyes and it ultimately led to his demise. And he ended up going to Moab for what? To escape death and to find comfort and security, only to experience death in the very place he sought to escape it. We also see that he didn't move alone. He moved with his sons, right? Malon and Kilion. He moved with Naomi. And they too could have repented and gone back home after his death. But the text tells us what? They stayed. For 10 years, they stayed. Malon and Kilion, they married Moabite women. And everything seemed to be going fine, except for the fact that they never had children, which should have been a sign to them, hey, God's not really with you in this. And sadly, they both end up dying as well. And then think about it. In just half a verse, Naomi's entire life is flipped upside down. Her name means sweet. That's what her name means. But her time in Moab has been anything but sweet, right? She buried her husband. She buried her children. Many commentators, many theologians will say, like, she's the female Job of the Bible. She lost it all. And when I say she lost it all, you need to really understand, she lost everything. This is a patriarchal society. This is an agrarian society. Naomi was completely dependent upon her husband 
and her children. And for them to die and pass away means she is automatically in a place of poverty. She cannot go back to school to learn a trade. She cannot just jump into a local business. Why? Because her family was her career. And I can't help but to think at this point, some of you are like, oh, thanks, Travis. Merry Christmas. That's more like bah humbug. I mean, what is this all about? And I promise you, we will get there. But what you and I have to see, especially during this time of the year, when we start to remember who Jesus is, we've got to understand there's a big difference between knowing about him and knowing him. You see, many of us have heard Charlie Brown tell the story, right? He does it every year, Charlie Brown, to show you her, where you hear whatever Linus, whatever his name is with the, the blanket. He's like, tells the story of what? The birth of Jesus every single year. And every year we hear the same old story. We know that Jesus was born. We know it was a virgin birth. We know there were miraculous things that happened. Angels proclaiming it, shepherds, all this. But the question is, do you really know him? It's important to see that God's kingship in Elimelech's life was in name only. He may have known about God, but the way he lived his life revealed that he didn't really have any influence in his life at all. Apparently, he doesn't trust in God's provision and goodness, and so instead of turning back to God, he turns his back to God, and he runs off to live in Moab, and the results are disastrous. And I can't help but to think how many of us, sadly, are like that. You see, there are so many so-called followers of Jesus who are Christian in name, but their lives don't reflect love and devotion for him. You see, like Elimelech, we may know about God, but we live our lives with complete disregard for his presence and purpose in our life. And the question you and I have to ask ourselves is if the God we worship cannot or does not speak into our lives, have we not possibly created a God of our own imagination? You see, God is alive and active and he wants to be in your life for you. He's with you. He loves you. Many of us in here, and some of you guys have heard me talk about this, have what I call a Walter McCarty type faith. And some of you are like, who in the world is Walter McCarty? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. See, Walter McCarty is six foot ten. He's from Evansville, Indiana. And he played basketball at the University of Kentucky, my favorite team. In 1994, I remember going to bed completely disappointed because Kentucky was down 31 points to LSU only the next morning to wake up to see the glorious good news that Walter McCarty hit the three that completed the largest comeback in NCAA history. Think about that. He went on in 1996 to win a national championship and he was drafted number 19 by the New York Knicks in 1996. And for some reason, I don't know why, I know that because he was so tall and skinny that the coach of the team made him eat packages of double-stuffed Oreos to gain weight, which I don't know why I know that, but I know that, and I think that's a pretty good diet, honestly. And so, so here's the thing. I know a lot about the man, and shortly after moving to Las Vegas, I was standing in the Venetian Casino, there with my wife and my father-in-law at the time, had on a Kentucky hat, a Kentucky sweatshirt, and there across the courtyard of the Venetian was who? Walter McCarty standing. And so like a kid seeing Santa for the first time, maybe that's not the best analogy. Some cry, but some go. I end up running over to Walter McCarty. I see him. I look up at him. I say, you're Walter McCarty. He said, I know. I said, I'm from Kentucky. He goes, I can see that. And I said, thanks for all that you did. And I ran away. 
I know a lot about Walter, but I don't really know him. And he doesn't really know me. You see, Walter has no speakability into my life. I don't go to him to discern where I should live, for advice on how I should love my wife and kids, or what I should do for work. And sadly, many Christians have a relationship with God kind of like that. And you got to ask yourself, is that you? How would your life be different if you allowed God to speak into it? Have you seen the emptiness of living life without him? Some of us during the season, we're like the prodigal son in Luke 15, thinking that we know what's best, trying to live our lives apart from God, only to find out it ends up in something that is completely empty. And C.S. Lewis once said that if I find a desire within me that nothing in this world can satisfy, I must conclude what? I was made for another world. You and I were not created just to know about God. But Jesus came so that you and I could truly know him. And so instead of running away from him, why don't you turn around and go back to him and why not today? So we got to pick it up just a bit here. So let's roll. Naomi is in this place. She's got her daughters-in-law, okay? She's got two of them. She's got safety, comfort at one point, but then in the next moment, what do we see? Great pain and suffering. Think about it. Her family is dead. She's in a strange land with strange language and strange gods. And at this moment, she starts to hear some good news. And this is where we start to see Advent come in. Listen to what it says. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return, to the country, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. What does she hear? That the house of bread Bethlehem is being restocked, right? The bread truck has come in. It's time to go back home. And what we notice is that this is completely act of God's grace because we don't hear anybody in this text repent, turn back to God. God just shows up and Naomi wants to go home. And so her and her daughter-in-laws, they set off to go back to Bethlehem. And this is where we read 7 through 18. Check it out. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-law, <coughs> daughter-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah, verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to, your mother's to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed him, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I, not, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods and returned and return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. 
For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, more so, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. What is going on here? What is going on here is an extremely awkward conversation. Here come Orpah and Ruth traveling back to Bethlehem with Naomi. And as they are traveling back, she stops the trip. She looks back at them and has probably one of the most awkward, difficult conversations in all of the Old Testament. You see, 52% of this book has to deal with conversations. And this right here is the weird one. She looks at her daughters-in-law and she starts to have second thoughts. Why? Because I can't help but to think she wondered if Bethlehem would be a good place for them. Naomi had lived in Bethlehem. These are her people, her land, her language, her God. These are Moabite women. How are they going to be treated in Bethlehem? Who's going to want to hang out with a Moabite? Remember, they're the enemies of God. And not only who's going to want to hang out with them, but who in their right mind would marry one of them? She looks at them and says, it's probable, it's best that if you just stay here, you will have a better life. And at first, Orpah and Ruth refuse, yet Naomi doesn't give up. She's persistent. You can only imagine the tears that streamed down the faces of these women as they had this conversation. Naomi wasn't just trying to get rid of them because they were bothering her. Naomi was trying to look out for them. Notice what she calls them. She doesn't call them my daughter-in-laws. She calls them my daughters. These are my children. She has brought them into her family. And it wasn't easy for her to push them back like this. She goes on to even say that if it was even possible for me in my older age to have a child, I would love for you to marry my son, to become my daughters yet again. Yet you know, and I know, I'm way too old to have a child. And you also know you'll be way too old to have a child by the time that one's old enough. So it's just best if you stay here. Just stay here and get married. These women have been through a lot of life together. They have lost their husbands, they have buried their husbands, and they have grieved those husbands. These people have done life together and have suffered together. And so Naomi looks at them and says, stay. And at this point, we see that these two women are faced with an option. You got Orpah. She looks at the situation, she's listening to Naomi, and she basically sees an equation that God plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus God in Moab. And so what does she decide to do? I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to Moab. Just like her father-in-law, the grass looked greener there, and so she goes home. Ruth, however, is faced with a similar equation. And what does the text say? She clung to Naomi. Clung to her. It's the same word used of a marital covenant, if you will, in Genesis 2.24, where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That the idea behind this is like a clenched, never giving up, always forever clenched, like I'm not going anywhere. The best way I could understand is like when I take my kids and try to throw them into a pool. You ever had your kid wrapped around you and you're trying to get them into the pool and what do they do? They dig their nails into the back of you? They wrap around your leg? You just can't shake them off or throw them off? That's what Ruth is saying. And this is probably one of the clearest signs of faith in the Old Testament. Because when you think about it, she's got the same equation. 
okay, God plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus God in Moab. And what does she choose? She chooses God. She makes a physical commitment, a social commitment, and a spiritual commitment. She looks at Naomi and says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. She says, I'm coming to your land. She makes a social commitment. She says, your people shall be what? My people. And then she makes the best statement of all, a spiritual commitment. She says, your God will be my God. So much so that she says, if anything should happen to me where I break this clench, may something terrible happen to me by your God. She's all in. And think about how this salvation came into her life too. It definitely wasn't from Naomi. You see, Naomi, if we look at her, she's a terrible witness who experienced terrible circumstances. Who in their right life, right mind is going to sign up for that God? Yet God works in her life, does a grace in her life, and she gives up everything to follow him. She gives up Chemosh. She gives up everything her family and her friends believed in, and she puts her faith in the one true God. And Paul helps us see the genuine faith of Ruth in 1 Thessalonians when he writes this. Check it out. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So how, what are you clinging to this Christmas? As we celebrate this first Advent, ask yourself, what are you attaching yourself to? If it's anything other than Christ, if it's anything other than faith in Jesus, you've got to ask yourself, is it really going to satisfy? We look back to remember the greatest gift that has entered into this world. And it's not something you and I asked for, it's something that God gave. And that is a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And that's where we start to see the glimpses of the first advent in verses 19. Listen. So the two of them went off until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women, said, the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi walks in the town and the gossip train begins. It's all over Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Naomi is back. And they, all the women are talking about it. I even think all the men are talking about it because they knew who Naomi was. When she left, she left full, right? She had a husband and she had sons. When she came back, she didn't have a husband and sons, but she actually had this stranger, this foreigner, on her side. It's almost as if the people look at her and say, hey, Naomi, how are you doing? And I love her response because so many times when somebody asks you how you're doing, you're like, oh, fine. I remember years ago, the first time I ever preached, it was to an older community, like an older class. And like everybody in there was like grandpa's grandma, stuff like that. And I jumped up and said, hey, how are we doing today? And they said, you really want to know? And I said, I don't know why. They said, you could be here all day. And I said, well, no, I don't really want to know. And I started preaching. And they were like, they started laughing. They took, I didn't offend all of them, Okay. But here's what I'll say. Naomi's honest. She comes in and she says, God had dealt bitterly with me. Call me Mar. Remember, her name meant sweet. Now she's saying my name needs to be bitter. 
And you've got to respect this. We know clearly from the Bible, Ephesians 4 and Hebrews 12 say that you and I shouldn't be bitter. We shouldn't be bitter. But you and I will not overcome our bitterness by trying to handle it on ourselves, by ourselves. We've got to admit it. And that's why we should be a church where somebody comes in and we say, hey, how are you doing? We actually care. And we actually share what's going on. You see, Naomi rightly understands that God is in control, but it brings her no joy. She believes, but she is furious with the God she believes in. Why? Because not only does she have bitter belief, she has bitter blindness. She can't possibly imagine or see any good coming out of this situation. Yet she is wrong to see that God is against her. There's an old uh, preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Love the man. He had a great beard. I'm envious of it. I can't grow a beard, but he could. But he was one of the best preachers of all time. People called him the prince of preachers. Here's what he said. He said, God is too wise to be mistaken. He's too good to be unkind. And when you can't trace his hand, you and I can always trust his heart. You and I cannot possibly know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. How many of you guys know what a tapestry is? Some of us do, some of us don't. I did not until I looked it up. and I was like, oh, I've seen one of those. It was in the movie Brave, okay? Remember that? She made the thing and then she tore it. She had to mend it back together. Okay, that's a tapestry. What is it? It's a big cloth, right, with an image on it. And the image that's usually on a tapestry is absolutely beautiful. We love those. But have you ever seen the back of a tapestry? It's a mess. It looks terrible. It's just a bunch of random strands of colored, you know, cloth or whatever, whatever it is, just going a bunch of different ways. I've heard that our lives can oftentimes be referred to kind of like a tapestry. On one side, our life is beautiful. It's an intricate work of art. But if you lift up the corner to look at the backside, you'll find what appears to be erratic, chaos, and chaotic mess of strands. And what you and I oftentimes see in this life is not the front of the tapestry, but we see the back. And life can feel random. It can feel chaotic. It can feel like it's out of control. But there is going to be a day in that next advent when Jesus appears and he comes back that second time to right all wrongs, that he's going to flip each one of our tapestries around, and he's going to show us how each one of those chaotic strands work together to paint a beautiful picture for his glory and your joy. You see, unlike Naomi, there's another guy in the Bible by the name of Joseph who experienced a lot of great hardship in his life. Some of you might remember who he is. He was a boy who got sold into slavery by his brothers, went into Egypt, was falsely accused, made a prisoner, but then or a slave, falsely accused of doing something he didn't do, thrown into prison. Long story short, God works in his life, makes him second in command of all of Egypt, okay? And so at the end of that story, he gets something that you and I oftentimes don't get in this life. He gets to see the other side of the tapestry, he doesn't get to see the chaos. He gets to see the beautiful picture. And here's what he concludes in Genesis 50, 20. Listen to what it says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, God allowed Joseph to suffer and through it, he brought a lot of good. And many of us sit there and we look at the story and we think, okay, Naomi is in Moab because of her husband's choices, 
because of her son's choices, because of her choices. Yet Naomi reflects something that you and I should understand, that God is also in control even of that. You see, she's in Moab, but God is working behind the scenes. How? Because Naomi didn't come back to Bethlehem alone. She came back with that foreigner that many people probably despised. She came back with Ruth. And Ruth was vital to God's plan. You look in Matthew chapter 1, we read this. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, which you should circle Rahab, okay? And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, and eventually, who comes through this line? Jesus. Our culture, culture is absolutely obsessed with genealogies and lineages. We got Ancestry.com, 23andMe, MyHeritage, and I looked up some others I never even heard of. And in Matthew chapter 1, we see the genealogy of Jesus, and in that lineage, who do we find? Ruth, who is Jesus' what? Great, 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 great grandmother. And what is important to know about Jesus' genealogy is that it doesn't just list a bunch of names of specific people, but it also shows us the very ones who Jesus came to save. You see, he came to save his own people, the Jews, but he also came to save outsiders like Moabites. He came to save Gentiles like Rahab the prostitute, adulterers like David, and more. You see, Advent is about Jesus' arrival to rescue and to save. He has come for those who are runaways like Elimelech. He's come to those who are clinging to worthless idols like Orpah. And he's come to rescue those who are bitter like Naomi. We look at Ruth and we see that she left her land. She left her, her people. She left her gods to a place that would despise her. Yet in a greater way, her grandson, who would come many years later, would leave what? Heaven to enter this earth to what? To be despised by us, but to rescue and to save us. You see, the story of Ruth is not to camp out just on Ruth. The story of Ruth is to point to the first advent, the coming of the greatest one. His name is Jesus. The fact that love came down. And the question during the season is, do you know him? Do you, do you know who he is? Or do you know about him? Jesus has come to rescue you, to save you, and to redeem you. And that's what we celebrate during this time of the year. Let's pray.